With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, an internal audit and compliance consulting firm headquartered in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm also a well-known speaker on topics like COSA 2013, SOX 404, quality assessment reviews, internal auditing, and related topics. Today's interview I'm very excited about is with Norman Marks. Norman is a CPA, CRMA, and is the internationally branded Evangelist for Better Run Business, focusing on corporate governance, risk management, internal audit, and enterprise performance. He is a member of the review boards of several audit and risk management publications, including the magazines of ISACA and the IIA. He's also a frequent international speaker and author of several award-winning articles and a prolific blogger. Norman was the chief audit executive of major global corporations for 20 years and ran the SOX 404 programs and investigation units at several companies. His new book called Management's Guide to Sarbanes-Oxley Section 404, Maximizing Value Within Your Organization, has been described by readers as the best, and I'm quoting here, the best SOX 404 guide for management, unquote and can be purchased from the IA website or on the wonderful website of Amazon.com. Welcome, Norman. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction, Sonia. It's good to be with you. Excellent. We have been, um, my producer and I have been hounding you for the last, uh, you don't know this, but in the last three to six months, we've been trying to figure out how to do an interview with you. And when your book came out, we thought, aha, perfect opportunity. And that's exactly what I wanted to touch on first, which was what was the inspiration for you to write your book, Management's Guide to Sarbanes-Oxley Section 404, um, especially now? Thank, thank you, Sonia. So this is actually an old book, which has been significantly updated and given a new cover, um, and I think has, has got some great new value in it. The, the initial book came out a few years ago, I was on the International Committee responsible at the IIA for developing the practice guides and practice advisories we all use to help us in our practice internal auditing. And we as a committee looked around and we saw all of this guidance coming out on SOX from the CPA firms, from productivity, from consultants, experts, but not the people within the business who are charged with doing it. And we looked around at ourselves and said, we are the people who have the best understanding within our business of internal controls, how to assess the effectiveness of internal control, especially around financial reporting, because most of us had spent uh, quite a few years in the uh, auditing profession. Myself, I was with um, Coopers and Ibrand PwC for, for 10 years plus. And so we put together a team of uh, very seasoned, experienced practitioners at CAE level for the most part, 
which I led, and I, with their help, wrote this book. We spent a lot of time talking to the regulators of the SEC and PCEOB, multiple meetings, and they were extraordinarily supportive and uh, provide a lot of information on the background of their thinking, the fundamentals, and so on. And so we came out with the first edition of the book, which was initially a download from the IIA, and, and there was probably something like 200,000 uh, copies that were downloaded. Since wow. then, it's gone through multiple revisions, and we've come out um, at the end of last year with a major new update in, in hard copy and in, in, in soft copy. Um, the updates over the year has obviously included updating for auditing standard number five, um, and then more, most recently to bring in the discussion of COSO uh, 2013, the principles and how especially given that we have to follow a recognized internal control framework, and the only one that's specifically recognized is COSO, how do we use that and still maintain a top-down risk-based um, approach to developing the, the scope of 404? And so we spent a lot of time, probably a 20% increase in the content of the book, just focusing on providing some guidance on uh, COSO 2013. Yeah, I, I personally found when – so Bush signed the, the, the SOX law into 2002. 2004 hit, and like you said, the big CPA firms, they, they were able to, because of their resources, quite frankly, create materials that were produced for their own benefit, which is, some would, some would argue, overkill. Because in the marketplace back in 2004 and five. I were seeing astronomical fees. People were saying, you know, we're over auditing. This isn't really material and or it's not the biggest risk in the organization. And you're correct. The internal audit group knows best not only how the company runs, but what the true risks are. An external auditor is there, what, quarterly for a review process at best and then an annual audit. And so they're really always you know, months, sometimes years behind and really understanding what the true risks of a company are because they're very, they're only there periodically. An internal audit group is living and breathing that organization's risks as well as their operations and those mitigating controls. And so this guidance not only is more relevant, I would say, than something that, that came from uh, a big four branded uh, firm. And you also have to think of the mindset. When I was working at Ernst & Young, I, you know, I, I worked at two of the big four, we were just so, um, coverage was our, the biggest thing in 2004 and five. How much were we covering of the balance sheet and income statement? Therefore, the regulators, if they were to look at our work papers, would say, well, geez, we just beat the heck out of the balance sheet and income statement. There's nothing that, there was no significant rock that was not, you know, lifted up and, and, and reviewed. you follow? So, that's where the pendulum now has finally swung with your book, which is getting to where management can actually maximize the value of their compliance program rather than just meet the compliance regulation, which is, is more towards ticking and tying, let's say, you know, key uh, template risks that a big four firm may have that's going to audit you. And I wanted to, to cover something that you touched upon in, in the first question, which is, COSA's new framework. I mean, it took over 20 years to build on, and, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that new framework. Do you think this is just going to be a simple mapping exercise that, geez, you know, a lot of practitioners are, practitioners are just going to look at it and 
um, map through it, um, or is this something that people really need to revisit the, the principles and the approaches that need to be implemented for their organization, and then taking more time to, to do this rather than just a simple, simple mapping exercise. I wanted to get your thoughts about transitioning and how people should really absorb this new framework. Thank you, Sonia. Um, as, as you were talking, I was reminded of um, a comment that was made by uh, CFO of one of my companies. He told the, the audit committee um, that, and this was after the external auditors had left, that um, we purchase an opinion from the external auditors, but if you really want to know what's happening within the organization, ask internal audit. Um, and the book is, in response to a lot of that overkill, the major focus of the book, the, most, the, the greatest benefit, I think, is it helps you develop a more efficient SOX program, and, and I think we'll come back to that. But the, the thing with, with COSO, I think people have become so uh, focused on the principles that they've, they've lost sight of a number of things. I was still a CAE in 1992 when the original framework came out, and I thought that for internal audits, it really didn't say anything new, but for many people, it was a tremendously valuable um, production because it brought everybody around the same uh, common definition of what is internal control. And I think one of the most important things about the 2013 update is that it hasn't changed that definition of internal control. Mm -hmm. The other thing which is very important about looking at 2013 is that it remains risk-based. This is why you have that component in there, which is the risk assessment component. And people have gone to the change, the major change, which is the addition of principles, and forgotten that the underlying, if you like, principle of COSO, which is internal control, is intended to reduce the level of um, likelihood of something going significantly wrong down to an acceptable level. It's, it's always been risk-based, and it continues to be risk-based. What's happened is that uh, PwC, who are the, uh, the leaders of the task force, working with COSO, have provided some additional guidance and help. They've beefed up a lot of the content in COSO, which is some really excellent content in there. And they've added the principles. But if you look at the section there on what is effective internal control, it starts off with internal control has to reduce the level of risk to acceptable levels. And then it goes on to talk about the principles. So when people talk about mapping, that's fine. That's fine. It's really good to take the principles and say, what controls do I have, but how many controls do you need? That's the right. big question. How many controls do you need? And do you have too many? Do you have too few? That's the question that's got to be, the answer to that question has got to be based upon the level of risk. Mm -hmm. If you don't have independent objective directors, what's the risk to your objectives? Is it something that could result in a material weakness or not? And is the combination of satisfying the, the principles which we have to do, but at the same time managing the risk at acceptable levels so that we don't have material weakness, that's the focus of the book, and that's what we're trying to do, is make sure we don't go overboard and start adding in a whole bunch of new controls or doing additional testing on existing controls. It's not necessary because if that control failed, it wouldn't be material weakness. And even the regulators have, have, have 
talked about the SOX program as being, a quote, a search for material weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So we need to make sure that we're not doing things, we're not testing anything, that if it failed would not be a material weakness because that's a very strong indication that we're doing too much work. Right. It's kind of taking that backward approach of if this wouldn't cause a material weakness, how, real, how important is it for the organization at that point? And then obviously taking a review of the risk. Is this really a valid risk to begin with? Um, and, and our approach has been somewhat similar. And when, when I've gone around to different IA chapters doing um, COSO training, I, I show them the, the COSO cube and I say, you know, where, where has this top-down risk-based approach phrase come from? And I, I have the cube right sitting right there in front of them visually. And they kind of stumble upon it. And I said, well, it's, it's right here. It's visually here. It's the control environment is your top company-wide controls. And then it, it's a risk-based approach. The next component is your risk assessment. And, and the um, aha moments that I typically get is when we get knee-deep into that risk assessment process and we go through the the four management risk responses related to certain risks, right? And they, they kind of realize, oh my gosh, I, did, I never even knew that there were these specific risk responses. And then I map it to the ERM. I said, it's the same ones, you know? COSO hasn't really made that big of a deviation in terms of management's risk responses, but it's your rating system you really have to think about. The likelihood and the significance, and we go through the quadrants, et cetera. But that's where I get my aha moment is not so much the company-wide controls like the standards of, of conduct, et cetera. It's how to quantify and evaluate risks and then monitor. When we get to the monitoring component, they're like, well, what's my obligation for the risk assessment process at that point? And I said, well, it depends. Every organization is going to evaluate their risks differently. So um, to your point, I don't think it's going to be a simple mapping process. I think this is a great opportunity. Um, some people see this as a, a, an exercise or a challenge. I just want to flip that around and say, no, this is a great opportunity for you to challenge yourself to see where are the true risks. And to your point, if it's not really going to create a material weakness, that might be a great reverse engineering exercise saying, well, why am I doing this? Where, where, where is the true risk at this point? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that um, the, new, the new guidance has helped with is we've always talked in the past about, well, you mentioned uh, the, the code of conduct and that it's necessary to have some kind of work done as part of our SOX program that, that addresses the adequacy of the company's policies, practices, and so on as it regards uh, ethical conduct. But there's never been a really good tie between that and material weakness in the financial statements, or material error in the financial statements. And what this has, I think, has helped us is provide us a little bit better signpost in terms of understanding the relationship between these activities, which I call indirect controls, mm-hmm. okay? Um, leveraging some of the, the, the language that was in um, SEC and PCAOB guidance, which talked about certain, um, quote, entity-level controls having an indirect effect. Um, I talk about some of these principles as also having an indirect effect. And what we need to do is understand that if you have concerns with, say, the ethical conduct or the oversight of the board, they don't in themselves represent a risk of material 
error in the financial statements. What they do is they represent a higher level of risk that your co controls that directly address uh, the adequacy of the financial statements are likely to um, be operated consistently and appropriately. So they have an I call these direct and indirect controls, which is something I spend a fair amount of time on, again, in the book, trying to help people navigate their work down to minimize um, waste um, by doing too much work on the SOCs. Right, and <clears throat> to that point about those indirect controls, some of them I have found in practice for some of our clients are what the PCOB is calling in their new um, staff alert uh, uh, dealing with how to audit internal controls. It was issued October 24th of 2013. They're called management review controls. And the, the, the depth of reperformance measures they want is significant, but that's been the bar for internal audit as well as external auditors. And so now we're seeing in the marketplace quite, quite actually uh, frequently now um, where people are saying, well, wait a minute, now it feels like we're swinging the pendulum the other way. And I said, no, if this was always the bar. You know, accepting an indirect control like a, a management sign-off on an AR allowance just because the controller or CFO is competent, has been doing their job for several years, is okay at it, um, is a CPA, et cetera, <laughs> Um, and that signature and dating it is not acceptable. It never really was. We were always supposed to do a, a deeper dive into that, those indirect controls that cover, let's say, a broad spectrum of different risks. And, and so now we're seeing this, this trending, uh, especially some, for some of the accelerated filers and large accelerated filers, for, on these management review controls that, are, that were indirectly covering or mitigating against several types of risks. But I, I wanted to kind of move away from that and go into your, more into your book a little bit um, on the efficiency component. I mean, your book discusses ways to drive out inefficiencies. Can you tell our listeners how optimizing a company's SOX program and the new framework might help with that process? Well, <clears throat> I, think, I think the best, best way to do that is through a couple of uh, stories. <clears throat> so, like you, I also uh, teach um, SOX to, 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 to SOX leaders. I do that uh, with a company called Marcus Evans. And in fact, I've got my next class is going to be in Chicago next week. And people come to that class and, and then they go back after hearing the approach. And I hear stories about how they reduce their cost by 20%, or they have reduced their journal control scope by 40%. That's very dramatic, and they're doing it because they're following a, a well-thought-through, well-accepted by the CPA firm's process that leads them to document, satisfy the PCOB, um, all their judgments, and come down with the right scope. It's not necessarily about always cutting the number of controls. It's about identifying the right controls. And by doing that, they're able to, to drop 20% overall, 40% of, of IT journal controls. When I was at Business Objects in our last year, um, the, the scope for SOX, we really spent a lot of time with EMY, your old firm. And in the last year, we took a million dollars out of the program cost. Wow. Most, of that, most of that out of the external auditor fee because they were able to focus their work, 
they were able to place a tremendous 80% reliance upon internal audit because of the, not just the quality of our work, but the documentation and the rationale and the flow and the logic. It all made a lot of sense for them. And so, yeah, they were very happy. They told the board and, how and I'm glad they, they were. I'm glad that you brought in that that component of the external auditors, walking them through that, because I'm a big fan of, of calling them the partners. They're just the other partner to the company. Um, they shouldn't be treated as <clears throat> the other set of auditors, but rather part of the team. Uh, we're partnering up with them uh, because the more advanced notice and or giving them insight about how the risk assessment process has has begun, uh, the source of it, the guidance materials you're using, the brainstorming sessions, inviting them to that those sessions even, I, I think that they look at it and they say, this company's really taking this seriously. So all of, all of a sudden, they're human beings sitting across from you at the other side of the table. So from a, from a profession where we're supposed to have high skepticism, et cetera, and be independent, that's fine. But they could see that, gosh, you know, the company's doing the right thing, and I can see the activities that support that they're doing the right thing and they're on track to really honing in on the true risks and controls that mitigate those risks. Therefore, I mean, it, it's a natural human effect to get the other side to say, you know what, I can't place more, more reliance. I, I see how you're doing this, and it's, it's up to standard, and it's something that I would agree to. And it's, it's very um, interesting that when we get hired to do a control rationalization project and we tell the other, you know, the external auditors, the natural assumption is we're just going to beat the heck out of the, them and, 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 you know, renegotiate a bunch of things. And, and, and instead what I tell clients is that's not what you're really hiring me for. You're hiring me to partner up with the external auditors so that they have a better understanding of what you're really doing and what the true risks are. Eventually, they'll understand the business better and understand what we're testing and put more reliance on it if we keep, keep them informed uh, on a regular basis. So that the million-dollar reduction, is, it doesn't surprise me, but it surprises a lot of other people. So, Sonia, um, as I said, I, I do these classes, and a year or so ago, this is one of the things I learned. I was consistently hearing from the people in the class, well, that's all well and good, but the external auditors won't let me do this. They insist on this. They insist on that. And so I, in this latest edition of the book, there's a whole chapter in there about working with the external auditor because it is just so important to bring them on as partners. And, in fact, I encourage everybody who takes through my training to give them a copy of the book. Um, I also spend a lot of time on the IIA's Gates methodology, which I also wrote, and... Um, Again, I give them a copy, and, and, and it just makes much sense. These, these are not as, uh, the, the enemy. They don't want to, um, to do the wrong thing. They want to do the right thing, and if you just give them every reason to work with you through your attitude of partnering, through your clear, well-thought, well-documented methodology where all your judgments are laid out and easy for them to follow, you're making their life easier, and they will recognize that and, and appreciate it and work with you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I wanted to, again, kind of go with that theme about your book without giving too much away. Can you tell us a little bit about 
the rules for assessing the system of internal controls over financial reporting, or what I would call rules of the road for internal auditors? I think that, well, first, first of all, it's, it's not just internal auditors, obviously. It's, it's for the, that part of the organization which is charged for running the SOX program. Um, I think it really comes down to where are the sources of a potential misstatement of the financials as filed with the SEC that could be material. And that really comes down to identifying the, the accounts, the significant transactions, the locations, and to some extent the processes and the controls that could fail and lead to um, at least a reasonable likelihood of a material error. And if you have controls that give you reasonable, not perfect, but reasonable assurance that that won't happen, you're done. Right. And stop. Right. Right. It's going down to that reverse engineering kind of um, thought process that I was thinking of when you were mentioning if if this isn't really going to result in a material weakness. Let's think about the risk again <coughs> and ask our question. Ask the question: Why are we doing this again? And I wanted yeah, so to. Let's, right, let me ahead. give you just one tiny little um, insight that's so, uh, something that's in the book, which is when it talks about multiple locations. If you have two locations where um, the processes, the systems, the people are all different, the likelihood of the same error occurring in those two locations is actually, if, one, if they're both 10% likelihood independently, the likelihood of them both occurring at the same time with an error in the same direction is the product of their likelihood. It's only 1%. And people don't see that. Hmm. So people are doing a f- far too much work on multiple locations. And and the new – well, it's not that new, but the AICPA put out some sampling guidance that was trying to address those multi-location um, issues about how much to sample, you know. And, and the, the, what I have found in some of the training exercises that we do is um, a lot of people have forgot that there, there's new guidance issued and they're relying upon – uh, a publication that they got, you know, or they inherited a sampling methodology. And when I questioned the multi-location issues, and I said, well, remember, <clears throat> it's still a risk-based approach. You may have something that by the financial number, right, the quantitative aspect is large, but the qualitative aspects, those factors may not be as relevant. Therefore, your aggregate risk score for that location may not be as equivalent to this uh, to another location, just purely on a number standpoint. You follow? So, so getting them to think that way, and I, we kind of walk through different exercises of different uh, how to evaluate those components. That's where the aha moment happens, is because they've just been sometimes regurgitating what what the prior work papers were telling them to do. And um, to your point about you know, looking at the errors and, and, and uh, uh, evaluating how sometimes we're doing too much. I would also make an argument that sometimes corporate office has a way, just a, a, a more robust management review control that would manage those two locations much better than an individual transaction control. And having that conversation and brainstorming session and documenting the rationale for that 
sometimes makes way more sense than a tr individual transactions that you're going to be picking from. And so <clears throat> it's, I, we, we typically um, tell our clients when we first bring them on board that imagine that it, this is going to be a, a uh, rigorous process that we're going to take you under, but more importantly, it's going to be a teaming process. And so brainstorming really brings out, I think, the best in people, especially when you start bringing people from different departments like IT, um, the sales department, <laughs> the payroll department, whoever's heading up HR, and you start having healthy discussions, and then these people kind of realize the importance of what you're doing. And then more importantly, those company-wide controls become more apparent to them why it's important to always get it right, even if, it's, it, even if you do end up uh, deciding to do more transaction control testing over at a, a multi-location. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, I'm just kind of reiterating your point because it, it just seems like a recurring theme whenever we do a control rationalization. It's just kind of coming down to the basics because people just forgot what the basics were. So what's, uh, I know we're running out of time here, so I just want to, to say something which I think is fundamental, which is coming back to your point, the basics. The SEC and PCAOB criticized a number of organizations and their auditors for following a methodical model, calculations, and all the rest of it. There's a magic word, judgment. We've got to use our judgment in defining the scope use our judgment in defining how much work to do, and use our judgment and ask our external auditors to use their judgment too. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Do you have time for, for a couple more questions? Or? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Okay, great. So I, I wanted to re reiterate a quote that I, I, I found very fascinating. Uh, Larry Harrington, who is a VP of Internal Audit over at Raytheon um, Company, commented about your book, which I want to quote now. Quote, Sarbanes-Oxley has become a routine process at many companies. And this updated guide is a great tool for those employees who are new to Sarbanes-Oxley, giving them leading edge thoughts about how they can improve the quality of the program. Now, how has your book addressed this need that Larry's calling out as leading edge for SOX? I think, it, it, okay, so this is what I teach teach people, which is that you can't understand and move to the leading edge until you have a solid foundation. And the book takes you through that solid foundation. It brings you back and reiterates what we're talking about, what is top-down or risk-based. What does that really mean? Um, and how do I go about putting that in place? Now let's talk about some of the practices and so on that have developed over the years. Some of the things that are hidden. Uh, for example, auditing standard number two uh, very clearly says that you don't have to test backup procedures, backup and recovery. And your people are still doing that many years afterwards. Um, and it's really not necessary to be part of your scope. You talked about some of these higher level, anti-level controls. One of the things we talk about in the book is that while some people talk about activity level and, and company level, you've actually got multiple layers of controls. You've got the corporate, you've got the division, you've got the location, you've got the um, process unit. You've, you may have five or ten different layers, and you can have controls operating with different levels of precision across each one of them. So we get into a lot of different ideas um, accumulated from um, 
the experience of, again, many years and many people in terms of how you can drive the cost down by bringing the scope into line with what is really happening, what is really necessary. Uh, Leading-edge thoughts, such as using extending the, the top-down risk-based approach into your IT general controls to take 30 40% of those out of scope because they're not necessary. Um, but at the same time, potentially bringing more ones in because you now have a better understanding of how technology risk relates to the financial statements. Things like working with the external auditors. Uh, things like how to build this into the, the risk management or how, how it should work with the risk management program. Um, and then other things such as when I talk to the SEC, I talk to them about uh, violations not only of Section 404 of sarbanes but Section 302. And I think um, we are starting now to see prosecutions under uh, or relating to uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. That was one of the, the things that I talked about in my last class is we actually got a, an SEC um, prosecution agreement, deferred prosecution agreement, that was around Sarbanes-Oxley. So we're, we're leveraging all of this and, and looking forward also to the 302 certification process to make sure that not only are we developing an efficient and effective SOX program, but we're, we're building the protection for our board and executives um, against potential violation of law in other areas such as your disclosure process. Right, right. And, and like you said, the leading edge really is coming down to the core basics of a SOX program. I mean, that's, that's the core of it. And my dad's been, been saying for quite some time to me when I was a kid, you know, common sense sometimes isn't so common. <laughs> That's exactly right. You mentioned earlier talking to your payroll department. How often does payroll result in a material misstatement? It's almost impossible. And using, using that common sense to, to, to think about the fact that payroll doesn't fluctuate from period to period very much. So if you do a flux review at a corporate level on payroll, knowing the level of error that would be material, you would be able to, with one control, or maybe by geographic area, which is what we did at my companies, we had one key control on payroll for each geographic area and did a flux review, you'd be able to detect anything even remotely close to a material misstatement. And by doing that, you can cut out all the transaction-oriented controls about raises, hiring, and, and all the rest. The um, bonuses. And <laughs> yeah, I know. because... Because so you, you, it's that kind of application of common sense, understanding the fundamentals, to that gives, brings you to leading edge. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with you, and I hope our, our listeners are kind of absorbing a lot of this. And I wanted to kind of shift gears to to your blogging activities because I know. <laughs> Um, you're just a, a prolific blogger, and I, I have personally followed your post for quite some time. Um, what what are you seeing now as like kind of a either a recent blog type of trending, or what's attracting readers right now in the world of internal um, auditing or compliance or risk management? So I think COSA 2013 continues to be a hot topic as people uh, are working to um, upgrade their their program for this year. What continues to be a problem for many organizations is, is risk management. Internal auditors um, are 
appropriately and, and should be commended for it. Our internal auditors are, are taking the lead in helping organizations manage risk within the, and across their organization. And what I'm trying to do is get people to move away from what I call static management of a list of risks to, to really understanding that risk management is all about enabling uh, more intelligent making of decisions and taking of risk. As your old firm EY talks about, risk management gives you the confidence to take more risks when you have a better understanding of um, what uncertainty lies ahead of you and what its effects could be. So those are the, the kind of blogs uh, that I'm finding are getting a tremendous amount of, uh, of attention, of the ones that are helping organizations really think through the value because people want to do risk management, but they're struggling in, in how to persuade management and the board to, to do it right, to see the value, and follow what COSO and ISO both say, the ISO, the ISO Global Risk Management Standard. They both say, which is that it has to be embedded within the organization. How do you do that? How do you justify it? And those are the kind of things that I find people are struggling with. Yeah, and I, I would say to comment on the, the risk management process, it's kind of Figuring out every organization has a different risk appetite, or or some would call it a risk culture, you know. And I I see it almost in um, conjunction with their stage of growth. For example, when I see private companies uh, with a lot of the original owners, the people who started it, their risk appetite and, and the culture there is uh, taking. Uh, they just take a lot of chances. Okay. But the communication channels are very, very frequent. They know the risks. It's not that they're being reckless. It's just the owners are constantly meeting on a regular basis on, on what the needs are to grow the business. And then you get to this other, you know, the adolescent kind of stage. <clears throat> they're making money and you have this middle layer of management. And the risks are still, the risk appetite or the risk culture is still a little higher, right, than let's say, a very, very mature company, um, but they're scaling back. In other words, now there's more players involved, and sometimes, depending on the culture of the company, it, it really depends on the communication channels and how frequent they are and how deep those conversations get about risks. And what I see in, in practice, or at least with some of our clients, when, when they're at this early stage, if you will, high risk appetite. And then as they grow, grow and mature and they add more layers of management, then the risk culture changes significantly significantly from when they first started or when they're in that entrepreneurial type of, you know, space. Um and and, and that they struggle with that because they know intuitively they can't go back to the early stages and just be, you know, make a, a decision on the fly because, hey, it was just the original owners in the meeting. Now they know they have to be accountable to other people and they, they feel like they either lose that communication balance with those other individuals that they hired. Um, and what I find in leadership styles, those that are very successful in communicating as they, and, and incorporating new people early on, they continue with a uh, more robust risk assessment process and taking more strategic chances that make uh, a higher, let's say, win for the organization in aggregate because they figured it out. Like, yes, it was the original group of owners, but, yeah, they added more people. 
um, but they knew how to incorporate them to get them in line, or they, they hired the right attitude uh, of, of folks that really got what the owners wanted, and you could see the growth just take off versus others who were hiring bodies just to do activities. You know, they were just, their management style was, I'm so busy, I, I, I was one of the original owners, and now I just need to hire somebody just to do this transaction stuff, but they never incorporated them in the thought process of the growth. And that's where you see company A take off where they incorporated, you know, new people as they added, added them on into the culture, whereas others saw people more as you're, you're here really just to take over a bunch of activities that, I, I, that were on my plate that I don't want to do anymore, I shouldn't be doing anymore. And you can see the growth patterns are two different streams. Well, the, the thing with risk management is we've got to re- recognize that if you don't take risks, you die. Um, you have to take risk, and risk management processes should enable you as you make decisions to take the right risks. And the problem with the, the more mature company becoming more risk-adverse is that they start to die. And, and we see this in a lot of companies as they take longer and longer to make a decision, and they shy away from taking risks, and they, they lose their way, they falter, and they get overtaken. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just in the process right now of reading um, Secretary Robert Gates's book, and he talks about some of the problems in the Army, um, especially in, the, in his early days as Secretary of Defense. And the period of time that it took from a request in the field to get the, the vehicles that would protect the troops from the IEDs, the, the, the bombs, uh, the roadside bombs, and it took them months, if not years, to go through the bureaucratic process to get a decision made. The world is changing. Business is getting faster. If organizations are going to succeed, they have to have the ability to be agile, to take risks, but to take the right risk with intelligence. And that's what risk management really should be about. It doesn't really matter whether you're small or large. Certainly as you're small, you're perhaps closer to the the owners are closer to the business. They are better able to judge the risk. But even larger companies have to learn how to take the right risks Otherwise, they will falter and die. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I wanted to thank you again uh, for being a guest on our show, Norman. Um, thank you so much for offering such wise advice and some great uh, thoughts today with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sonia. Thank you for the opportunity. Well. This has been a wonderful interview, Norman, and I know everyone listening is very grateful for your insights. Just as a friendly reminder, you can find Norman Mark's book, Management's Guide to Sarbanes-Oxley Section 404, Maximizing Value Within Your Organization uh, on Amazon.com, and you can read this transcript on our website at avivaspectrum.com forward slash blog. This is Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, signing off. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.